Welcome to another episode of From the Heart. We are all the way now to episode three. We've interviewed Ken Blanchard. We did our little leadership moment uh, last episode. That's a that's a big leadership big moment. leadership Don't moment. Absolutely, there you go. Well, little as far cues. as the the uh, the time. Yes, shorter than shorter than an interview. <laughs> and today we're going to be sharing the interview that we did with Gary Ridge, the yeah. CEO of WD40, and uh, a very large Fortune 500 company headquartered in San Diego, California. Mm-hmm. I've known Gary for about a decade or so. He's spoken at a few events that I've done, and he was kind enough to spend some time with us that we'll share here in a few moments. But I'd be curious, Todd, you met him for the first time as we interviewed him and spoke with him uh, for this episode. What were your thoughts or takeaways from that interview? Uh, Well, first of all, just speaking to someone at that level, like that's that's stratosphere status, right? right? And the fact that his he was super personable. Uh, We mentioned humility, like was one of the things that came to mind when we talked about the interview. But I think his focus on people just blew me away because that is that's what I believe to be true. But I'm not even close to that stratosphere level. And to hear somebody at that level to confirm that was huge. Yeah. Uh, And I get the feeling that he knows his people. He's got a couple thousand employees. And I get that, you know, when we asked him, what's a day in the life look like? And he'll talk about that here on the podcast. It's it's getting to know his people. He really does. And he shared with us that. You know, the three areas of his focus are obviously the stockholders. They're publicly held, so that has to be a focus. Right. The customer, because without customers, no one exists. But the main focus was his people, and that really mm-hmm. is everything else. Take care of the people, and the rest takes care of itself. Yeah. And it was really easy to feel the authenticity oh, as he talked about Oh, very authentic. That. Yeah. And the, the differentiation in just the language of how you use between t- tribe and and, commu- and uh, team like right. that just and it, he does a great job explaining it. I'm sure he does it all the time which he does he does um, yeah. but it just there, I think there's so many things for people to take away from this to apply on any level right yeah and this will be uh, a nice follow-up to our first uh, episode with Ken Blanchard mm-hmm. Ken's obviously the servant leadership guru Gary met Ken as a student in a master's program at University of San Diego didn't they write a book together they have they've written yeah. a book together we'll talk about that in the huh. podcast a little bit as well And uh, we just hope that you'll enjoy this next episode coming up now uh, from the heart. Sit back and enjoy our conversation with Gary Ridge, the CEO and chairman of WD-40. Hi, I'm Gary Ridge and you're listening to From the Heart. Uh, Great. Gary, why don't you just start off, just tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from. Uh, I've got some questions for you as far as your role at WD-40, and I know you've been there for quite some time, but... Uh, the company culture is certainly one of the big deals when you think about WD-40, and I think we'll dive into that a bit. But uh, just first and foremost, welcome and, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, g'day, Ed. That'll give people a bit of a hint of where I'm from. There but, you go. Uh, my homeland is Australia. Yeah. And um, I moved, uh, I started with WD-40 in Australia in 1987, opened our Australian subsidiary there, uh, moved to the United States in 1994 to head up our global expansion program. Um at that stage, uh, WD-40 was very much a dominant U.S. brand with a lot of opportunities in a lot of countries around the world. And then in 1997, um, our CEO then retired and I got the opportunity to lead this amazing group of people to where we are today, which is a a global company that uh, takes the blue and yellow brand (laughs) with a little red top to 176 countries around the world. And... um, you know, we exist to create positive, lasting memories in everything we do. We solve problems, we make things work smoothly, and most importantly, we create opportunities not only for 
people outside, but more importantly for the people inside this wonderful organization. Yeah, a friend of mine shared with me recently that there's two things in this world that we need, duct tape and WD-40, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen it. If, it. if it moves and it shouldn't, use duct tape, and if it doesn't move and it should, use WD-40, right? So you've Sounds got at least half the market right there. Sounds good to me. So that, that really builds up a, a question for me that's been on my mind a lot lately. I, I've studied a lot about you and about your culture and, and the tribal environment there, which I'd like to get into in a bit. But how do you take a what by most of the world would think is a non-sexy product, if you will, like a WD-40, and turn it into the type of a company where your culture is referred to by the Ken Blanchers and Simon Sinek's of the world as the role model for what a company culture should be like. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like when you took over and then how that transition took place to where, where you know, I've read your numbers, 93 94% of engagement with your employees or your, your tribe members. Curious about that journey. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, when I got to lead the company, the company was a great company. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Those that went before me did some really tr great work. The thing that was different is that we needed to be a different company because we were moving from being a company that was really very focused on the United States to being focused on the world. Hmm. You know, we'd become a very strong brand here. And for us to grow, we needed to spread our wings. And back in 1997, when I became CEO, I, I kind of looked around. I said, you know, what is it that we really need to do? And a couple of things became very clear to me. The first one was that micromanagement wasn't scalable. And if we were to have a group of people who went out every day, made a contribution to something bigger than themselves, learned something new, felt safe and went home happy, we as leaders had to create that environment. Sure. So I was a little bit lost in that. I, I think, you know, I, I hunted around and I went back to school. That's right. And I went to the University of San Diego and I um, enlisted in the Master of Science in Executive Leadership Program. And that's where I met my dear friend, Ken Blanchard. Yeah. And Ken was my professor and uh, in, one of, in, in that program. And um, this became clear that if, if we were to be able to develop this culture, we needed to set people free. We needed to remove fear. We needed to have a clarity around what our purpose was, and we needed to have a set of values that really guided people along the way. So I started to play with all those concepts way back in, you know, 1999 and 2000. And what worked, we did more of. <laughs> and what wasn't as, as successful, we did less of. And Seems pretty it logical. really comes down to some simple things. Um, really having a commitment to the fact that it is all about the people, sure. having a clear purpose, having a set of values, making sure that you have a clear strategy, that you execute well, and that you really focus on learning. The number one responsibility of a leader is to be a learner and a teacher. Our job as leaders is to help people step into the best version of their personal self. So, you know, I, it wasn't by accident, it was by intent, but the road was unclear. Um, to me, culture is values plus behavior times consistency. Hmm. A lot of companies have values. Some don't. Some companies are focused on what are the right behaviors. Some aren't. And most companies aren't consistent on the path. And that's why they, they fail to create cultures that are enduring over time. So a lot of false starts, but they can't really continuously keep that going. So what would you tell a company that might be, in that situation where maybe their employee engagement is low or they've just had trouble really getting that culture set up so that they can create a workplace where people enjoy going to work every day, what might be some of the first things that you would share with some of those organizations? 
well, it starts at the top. I would put a mirror in front of the leader <laughs> and have them look in it and okay. say, uh, what do you see? Uh, do you see um, a servant, committed servant leader? Or do you see my friend Al, the salt-sucking CEO, <laughs> um, who, um, who's all about ego and not empathy, all about it's all about him, not everyone else, who knows all the answers, who's about you know, dominance, who's about command and control, not freedom, and, and, and learning. So that's where it starts. Okay. You have to have a commitment sure. to, the, to um, it being all about the people. What does a day in the life for Gary Ridge look like when you're in the office every day? My day starts really early. Um, I'm normally up around four in the morning okay. and uh, I um, make myself a cup of coffee and I go to my home office and uh, I take my dog Max with me and he comes and sits by my side and I have my time of solace and I prepare my thinking for the day. I try to get out of the way stuff that doesn't matter so that when I do get into our TP here in San Diego or any other office that I'm going to around the world, I'm there for the people. Um, so my first few hours is really about being with the people, um, understanding, talking to them, um, hearing what's on their mind. Um, you know, uh, Michael Bungay Stainer, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he wrote a great book called The Coaching Habit. And the first two questions are what's on your mind and the, sec- and the second one is and what else. <laughs> and it, like and it's amazing how much Gets you can really think by just being um, being able to ask those questions and listen to the people because they have the answers. Right. Um, we don't have the answers. I'm consciously incompetent in most <laughs> things. I'm probably wrong and roughly right. There you go. It's nice to recognize that, right? Yeah. So you alluded to the teepee, which takes me back to the earlier comment about the tribe. Um, talk to us a little bit about that, how that mentality, I know you come from Australia. Tribe is big down there. I've read a book recently by a good friend of mine, Dave Logan called tribal leadership. Oh, yeah, Brett Dave's book. Yeah, Dave's a good man, good colleague, and good close friend. But I know your philosophy of tribal leadership was before that book came out. I'd be curious to just find out how that mentality starts and 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 do your people really refer to themselves as tribe as you do? Yeah, sure. One of the most sought-after desires we have as human beings is to belong. Right. Um, and if you think of Maslow's hierarchy to self-actualization, the first two kind of rungs in that journey are, are you safe and will you survive? So most organizations provide safety and they provide means of survival. They pay people for the work, etc. The next one is belonging or love, and this is where it all falls apart. Sure. Because organizations, unfortunately, don't create that, atmosphere of belonging where people truly feel like this is where I want to be. So way back when, when we started thinking about it, we started thinking about teams. And it's interesting because as I think about this now and having just read Simon Sinek's latest book, The Infinite Game, he talks about the finite game and the infinite game. So a team is something that is finite. You play on a team to win a certain game. There's a start time, a finish time, there's a set of rules, there's a referee, and when the whistle blows, there's a winner and there's someone who didn't You can win. look up at the scoreboard, right? The A tribe is something that is in the infinite game. Its role is to stay in the game over time. So when we looked about the difference between tribes and teams, we said you belong to a tribe, you play on a team. 
Okay. So then we went back and we looked at what are the attributes then that actually um, have kept tribes together over these thousands and thousands and thousands of years where, you know, tribalism is as active in a man type. I like one of the um, definitions of Sebastian Junger in his book Tribes. He said, the earliest and most basic definition of community, of tribe, would be the group of people that both help feed and help defend. So that's how we thought about it. So then I looked at the Australian, Indigenous Australians, the Aborigines and the Fijian Islanders, and I started to research and talk to them. I went to Fiji. I sat with um, tribal leaders in islands in Fiji. I interviewed uh, Indigenous Australians to try and understand what were the attributes of tribalism that were important. And interestingly, number one attribute of tribalism is learning. Interesting. If you go back thousands of years and we were observing a group of Indigenous Australians at a tribal meeting, what would you see? You would see the tribal leader teaching the young tribe members how to throw a boomerang. Why? Because if they couldn't throw a boomerang, they wouldn't survive. Sure. So what's our job as a tribal leader? To be a learner and a teacher. Our job is to prepare for the best they can be. Like, as you know, the book that Ken Banchard and I wrote, we're not here to mark your paper, we're here to help you get an A. Life is about helping people get A's. The next thing we learned in attributes was values. The values are there to set people free. They're future-focused. They're specialised skills within tribes. They're warriors. And they're celebration. So these are the attributes. And to answer your question, do people in WD40 <laughs> call themselves tribe members? You bet Absolutely they do. they do, yeah. All the time. Yeah. You will hear us in any one of our yeah. um, uh, operations around the world. The two things you would hear the most is, I just had a learning moment and I'm a WD40 tribe member. This is my tribe. And I've heard you talk about how you either win or you learn. And That's I really it. like that philosophy as well. I've heard great coaches talk about that as well. Talk about the onboarding process. When you bring somebody on board, um, what's your process like to make sure that they're a fit into that culture, into that tribal environment culture that you've created? Well, let's talk about the pre-boarding process because that's most important. Okay. The the actual recruiting process. We recruit for values. Um, and if you were to go onto our website, onto our careers page, the first thing that pops up is our values. And it basically says, if you can't align yourself with these values, um, don't, don't talk to us. So we start with values. We can, we can help people increase their competency around any particular discipline through formal training, but it's values that are important to us. So as you join the tribe, you're welcomed. Um, you're, it, it's, you, you're made, it's made sure that you, are, you've, you feel like you are part of this organization. And then through the process, you, you learn more about what's important to us, how to make decisions, how to be how to be brave, how to be curious. Um, and we like to give uh, feedback as well. Um, sure. We believe in the four pillars of care, candor, accountability, and responsibility. And candor to us is no lying, no faking, no hiding. I believe most people don't lie. I sure. believe intentionally un- or unintentionally people fake and hide. And why do they fake and hide? It's because there's a great deal of fear around whatever they're dealing with. So we we want to build trust with it, with our people, and um, that's why they they say that um, 99% of the people say they love to tell people they work here. I think it's some basic human stuff, Ed. Treat them with respect sure. and dignity. Show them a promise of tomorrow, 
let them make a contribution to something bigger than themselves, help them learn, and make sure that you do everything you can to let them go home happy. And you've created an environment where there is no fear if they make a mistake. They know they're going to be treated like a human being who is, is learning and contributing to, you know. We, as we, long as it's not immoral or illegal. Exactly. Um, there you go. There you go. And, and your onboarding process pretty much almost guarantees that you're bringing in high-quality individuals as well. Take us back a little bit. Pre your time at WD-40, obviously to, to have the, the emotional intelligence to go and talk to these tribal leaders, as you alluded to earlier, go back before that to your childhood. Who were some of the mentors and the people that you looked up to where our, our soul tends to recognize truth when we, when we see it? So obviously there's something in this tribal environment that has struck a chord with you early on that that's now the culture that you've created at WD-40. Where did that start? Where do you think that was it upbringing with your folks or was it a, a great mentor or leader as a coach when you were a child? Is there someone that you can point to early in your life that you have looked at their philosophies and character and tried to emulate that in your own leadership style? You know, I think there's not one person. There's a group of people. Okay. Now, my father worked for the same company for 50 years from when he was 15 to 65. So I was big. the youngest of four in the family. There was 12 or 13 years difference between my brother and I, my next brother and I. So I was a late arriver. So I actually grew up in a house of adults. I didn't have <laughs> young brothers and sisters. Okay. Uh, and my dad was coming to the end of his business career by the time I was leaving high school and getting into, into mine. So I, dad was always there to, you know, he had some, some very sage advice um, and, you know, a fair day's work for a fair day's pay was sure. one of them. Um, he had a very uh, impressive work ethic, um, you know, and, and I think that was important. But he was also the family guy that you could, <laughs> you could joke with. My mum was someone who was really the adventurer, um, she'd always be the one that would be challenging to go forward. And my mum lived till she was 99 years and nine months old. Wow. And she only passed away about five years ago. And she was the, she was the, the ultimate giver of unconditional love, which I call feedback. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> and there's only two words you need to know when your mum's in the, in the 90s, and that's yes, mum. And she would <laughs> always be willing to give you feedback whether you wanted it or yeah. not. And then as I shared in the book that I wrote with Ken, there are a number of people that I was – that I I had as I was growing up and from working in the local sports store to working in the local hardware store to working in the local dry cleaners to working on a milk truck, each of them taught me different things. Um, one story that I, I, I reflect on is I worked at a sports store and the, the guy who owned the sports store, his name was Jack Lambert. And uh, part of what the sports store did in a little, in a, in a suburb of Sydney was it repaired tennis rackets. And one day I walked out to the back of his, um, his workshop and, and Mr. Lambert had very large hands with calluses on them. Hmm. And the calluses came from, in those days, stringing the, the, the racket and actually sure. twisting the, a, a device they had to tighten it. Then he put a spike in the side and actually tie it off. And each one of these was a painstaking thing to do. Sure. I, as I watched and I said to him one day, Mr. Lambert, you know, why are you hurting yourself doing that? And he, and he gave me a, a, he gave me some feedback. He said, someone is going to depend on my work tomorrow. Wow. What an and that someone was one of Australia's greatest tennis players that was actually going to go to play in one of the finals of the Australian Open. And Mr. Lambert 
was taking so much time. And my learning moment from that was, you know, it's a bit like who, who folded your parachute? Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, good book. we need to make sure that we understand that the work we do, right? someone's going to depend on it. So there were many people that, that I, I benefited from over time. And I think the other one was a, a professor called Professor Julius Sumder Miller. Uh, he was a had a show on television in Australia, and he was this curly, white-haired professor that had an American accent, and he used to wear a white coat, and he'd do all these funky little <laughs> experiments on TV when you came home from school, like sucking an egg into a bottle, <laughs> and you know. But he always ended with this: "Why is it so? Why is it so?" And that stuck with me all that. my life where I, I asked him, why is that like that? Why is it so? Why should it be that way? You know, so often a belief is a thought that we trust is true. But so often the facts that are around that belief are not necessarily accurate. So we have to be curious and ask those questions in a caring way. So, so many questions come up in, in my mind as you're talking. I love the why is it so you get to see a lot of different companies around your travels around the world, your time with WD-40. I know you, you do a lot of coaching with others as well. What's the fundamental difference that you see in your people? Other, you talked about the onboarding and their values when they come in, and certainly the culture you've created at the organization at WD-40. Describe for us, if you can, the difference in what you see in a lot of the companies that you visit versus WD-40, just kind of how people approach work, how they approach leadership. Um, the killer, the number one killer, is leaders don't care. Okay. And care to us is empathy. And empathy to us is when the development and, and the progress and the, and the advancement and well-being of someone else more important to you than your own ego. And so many organizations that I see where ego eats empathy instead of empathy eating ego. Mm-hmm. That's the number, you know, emotional intelligence or ego right. or lack of emotional intelligence, I believe, through my observations over time, is the biggest killer of culture. Number one, it starts there. Sure. Um, and then purpose. Um, you know, we sell, or as you started the conversation, right. we, we sell oil in the can. How boring <laughs> is that? Well, we don't, you know. Right. We, our why statement is we exist to create positive, lasting memories. So when, when we talk about everything we do in the company, we're talking about how, what, what, how will that create a positive, lasting memory? When, when a auto mechanic or an artisan or a trademan is using our product in a factory in China or in Mexico or in Russia or in Germany, is that going to create a positive lasting memory for them? And will it help them do their job? Will it make their job easier? Will it help them be better at what they do? And if they are, that memory is we're going to create a better life for the people that it support. So, again, its purpose is so important. And then finally, and more probably that should rise to the top, is is there a set of hierarchical values that set people free? Because values are there to set people free. Sure. And our values are hierarchical and they're there. And anybody can make any decision they want in the organization as long as they reflect on the reason why we exist 
and our values. So they don't have to go, as Ken Blanchard would say, quacking up the hierarchy. Yeah, the quack, 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 as he talks. Yes. Exactly. Talk about that word empowerment. It's a word that's loosely used. We've been talking about it and studying it for decades in, in leadership. I've read most of the leadership books out there about the, the topic. But talk about what an employee or a tribe member at WD-40 would, might tell me about the word empowerment. Freedom. Okay. Um, clarity, transparency, um, recognition, guidance. So empowerment is, is really about giving people the environment and the tools to be able to make decisions in the absence of fear. That's how you empower people. You can't make anybody do anything, Ed. Right. They have to want to do it. Absolutely. And how, so what does that mean? It means, okay, is there transparency, clarity? Is, have you given them as, as much free space without fear as you possibly? Why we say we don't make mistakes, we have learning moments. A learning moment is a positive or negative outcome of any situation that has to be openly and freely shared to benefit all people. I heard Phil Jackson, who was obviously one of the great basketball coaches of all time. I think the season that the, the Bulls won 72 games, they obviously lost 10. You know, they played an 82-game season. He said his favorite practices were the day after the loss. Uh, because he felt like the, the team might have been a little bit more teachable after losing 10 times as opposed to the 72 victories. I don't know if I believe that or not, but talk about when you've had some struggles or some losses or some challenges. Uh, are there any learning moments that jump out at you either in your history or maybe your executive team or just any of the, the folks within the, the tribe there at WD-40 that, that really stand out for you? Um, you know, I think one of the huge learning moments in life is getting comfortable with the three most important words in life, and they are, I don't know. Hmm. And that was a great learning moment for me many years ago to just get comfortable with it. Yeah. You know, as I often say, in most situations, I'm probably wrong and roughly right. <laughs> and, um, and, and getting a big learning moment is just getting comfortable with those three words, I don't know. And once you admit that, you'll find the answers, you'll gather the people around you can help you find the answers and you'll move forward. And the other thing is, is getting comfortable with it, with it's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just these simple human beings bumbling our way down the walk part, walkway of life, bumping into stuff. And we take, sometimes we take ourselves a bit seriously. Sometimes we, we, you know, we, we're, we're hard on ourselves for the wrong reasons. Uh, again, as long as you know where you want to go, um, then it's up to us to create that path that's as safe as it can be to get there and those that follow us feel that way as well. I love it. So you have obviously stockholders because you're publicly held. You have tribe members that are there with you every day fighting the good fight. Uh, you have customers out there all over the world, where would you say if you had to put percentages, you spend the majority of your time? I think I know what you're going to say. With our people. With your people, okay. If you take care of your people, they'll take care of your customers and your customers will take care of your shareholders. Okay. <clears throat> what types of feedback do you get? Obviously, there's a scorecard when you look at the the ticker on the, on the stock exchange, but do you get any kind of pushback or feedback from from customers or stakeholders who feel like maybe your focus on your people, uh, you and I understand that. We understand what culture is and that that really is where your leadership needs to be. But do you tend to get any kind of pushback at all from any of those other two parties? Well, not from the shareholders. They've sure. had a compounded annual growth rate, yeah. total shareholder return over a 20-year period of 15% a year. Our market cap's gone from 250 
Nearly the two point billion, so they don't have a lot to. Uh, Not much to, to complain about, about there. <laughs> Absolutely. And interestingly enough, that growth in our value as a company absolutely correlates to the growth of our employee engagement. If you were to graph those two things over 20 years, they're in lockstep. Interestingly enough, Ed, in the last year or two, more and more of the people that we talk to who are investing in companies that are wanting to build an enduring company over time Mm -hmm. are more interested in our culture. Um, Way back, you know, when it was one of the one of the challenges public companies have is is that a guy on Wall Street called Short Sighted Sam, <laughs> and Short Sighted Sam thinks in ninety day intervals, right? Uh, which is very dangerous. And you put Al, the soul sucking CEO, and Short Sighted <laughs> Sam together, you might have a a short term win, but you've got a long term train wreck. You got a tough as culture far as the too. culture's concerned. Yeah. So you know we we're very conscious of the type of investors who want to invest in a company like ours who you know we're an enduring company our leadership our leadership promise is we want to build an enduring company that will be proud to hand on to others you know i've been here 33 34 years right uh, we're going to be proud our leadership team is going to be proud to hand this business to the new leadership team who are in our organization now once it's our time to do something different Right. Um, and, you know, I wrote in our shareholder letter, um, I think it was I think it was two years ago in, in the shareholder letter, I wrote a, 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 a paragraph to our shareholders and it said, our job is to make sure we create an environment where our tribe members wake up each day inspired to go to work, feel safe while they are there and return home at the end of the day fulfilled by the work they do feeling they have learned something new and contributed to something bigger than themselves. This is the world we envision. If we can create this world for our people, they will take care of our customers and that will in turn take care of our stockholders. That's an absolute paragraph out of my letter to my shareholders a year or so ago. And the proof is in the pudding. Like you said, all they have to do is look at the results and show that that culture and that philosophy works. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. It's not that. easy. It's that. simple, yeah. not easy. Time's right. not your friend. Yeah. You know, exactly. we're not perfect. We're not great. It's a great place. It's not necessarily for everyone, but. Sure. Uh, you know. Now, you know, from the fact that we've known each other for, you know, eight or nine years that I do a lot of work with family owned companies and succession planning is a big part of that. Now I understand in a publicly held company, succession may be a little bit beyond your your purview, but tell tell us a little bit about your succession plan. What does it look like? Uh, not asking for, hey, when's Gary going to retire, but more so just how does the succession look and, and what's the, the future of the tribe look like beyond Gary? Well, I, you know, I, I teach succession planning at the University of San Diego, as you probably know, in the right. master's program there, although it's part of another course that I do on project. I don't believe in session, succession planning. Interesting. I believe in bench building. If you Ooh, build that. the bench, succession takes care of itself. Hmm. So what we've been doing for 30 years is progressively building strong leadership benches in all the disciplines and all the areas of our company. So when the time comes for me to throw the keys, <laughs> there's someone in the organization that will catch them and there's a whole group of people around them that will continue to take this wonderful company to where it can go way into the future. This company does not depend on me. Right. I planted the seed to the tree. 
there is a lot of people who sit under that tree right now. Yeah, I like that. And also when you build a strong bench, everybody on that bench knows it's a strong bench and they have that loyalty to each other. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any challenges in that bench building where there's been a transition in a leadership just within the organization? And, and how does that tribal culture that you've created create a situation where there isn't the jealousy or there isn't the issue? A lot of times in succession planning, and again, not a term that you like, I understand that, but it's a term that's used everywhere. Sometimes a person is promoted and then their coworkers, their former coworkers have trouble. How do you prevent that in the type of culture that you've created at WD-40? Um, I think what I've observed is a, a, a real reaction of applause because I think people see the people that they want to lead. Mm-hmm. They know we, you know we don't have single conversations about this. This sure. is an ongoing conversation. It's the culture. It's discussed daily. It's, and it's like, yeah, okay, well, that, that person is going to be the best person to do that job. And we want to support them. Um, and fortunately, we've been growing, you know, reasonably well over time that we create new opportunities all the time. So I don't think there's a jealousy. Sure. Um, if there is, it's the person who is jealous that has the problem. Their, yeah. their ego is probably getting, because we are very transparent about it. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not something, you know, it's not a dark room full of smoke. It's, sure. you know, I, I, I would think that there is a, a fairly high degree of confidence in the organization that they could name certain people who would probably move into certain roles over a period of time and and be happy about it. Yeah, without a doubt. What excites you? When you wake up in the morning, you've created a culture and you've talked about everybody comes to work and they're excited to be there and the 99% of the people there say they love working there. What is it that Gary Ridge loves most? About I have the role? most wonderful job in the world. Yeah. I wake up every morning with one uh, one thing in my mind is how do I help people create positive, lasting memories? And the most exciting thing about that is finding all the different ways to do it. So the thing that I love the most about the mornings is that I actually do wake up. <laughs> exactly. And then after that, um, I go out every day to help people create positive, lasting memories. So I'm in the memories business. Love it. What are some of the things that you do that are unique? Let's talk about some of the details now. I know the culture, and, and I, I, I love everything that you're sharing. I'd love to hear and, and share with some of our companies and executives that are going to be watching and hearing this podcast. Can you give us a few specific types of things? I mean, not the company party and we all go to the beach and picnic. I'm sure you probably do a lot of those types of things, and so do other companies. But are there unique things that you do that you haven't seen in other, other companies that, you know, again, not check boxes that, hey, do these and your culture will be great, but some types of things that maybe you do that you don't see in other companies that are representative of the culture you've created? One thing that I do is I send an inspirational message out every morning to everyone hmm. in the company. You and Ken Blanchard. And it's yeah. called uh, For Today From. So uh, if you were um, getting them in the last month, it would have been For Today From Ho Chi Minh City for today from Shanghai, for today from London, for today from Edinburgh. Nice. And, um, and it helps me be connected with, uh, with our tribe. So I, and I, it's amazingly the response I get to that. You know, I do other things that people do. I, I, I write sincere notes. I mm-hmm. think note writing is really important. Right. Um, I, I take time to be with the people and listen to them. Um, I don't take my cell phone into meetings. I don't, 
I leave it in my office. I not important. You know, it's interesting. I was reading something the other day where it says two people were at a meeting and someone was on the cell phone and the person said, well, help me understand by, why the person who isn't here is more important than the person who's yeah. here. Yeah. That's a duh, right? Absolutely. That is a real duh. Yeah. So um, I think you have to disconnect from that. And then as an organization, um, we do a lot of um, little things. You know, we, we do... We, We've got a great facility here in San Diego, but it's not a Google. It's not about free food, mm-hmm. but it's about having collision zones, as we call them, where people actually walk into each other and have to have a conversation. Um, it's about having really meaningful leadership development training. It's about um, having you know, our fortress of health, which is a part of our organization where you know we have people come in and do lunch and learns around everything from how to cook a great meal to how to look after the health of your of your your finances how to plan for the future so it's we have a a group um, called helping hands which is our community involvement group that uh, all, all again tribe members who would do it voluntary so it, it's it's all the sort of stuff you do in families you know yeah. it's it's not so different yeah, you want to create that atmosphere where it does feel like family, where you have that feeling of love. I, you haven't said the word much at all in this interview, but I keep hearing the word love. Uh-huh. Uh, you love what you do. The people love what they do. It sounds like the people love each other. They genuinely have this feeling of, of love and compassion for one another. Winnie the Pooh said <laughs> in one of the, and I, I won't get this exactly right, but Winnie the Pooh said, you know, what is what is it that when people care so much about you? And Winnie says, it's called love. Hmm. I love you've quoted, quoted some great philosophers here, from Ken Blanchard <laughs> to Simon Sinek to Winnie the Pooh. What do you read? when you're? Uh, I, I get, obviously, you read a lot of leadership books, but are there other books out there that inspire or authors that, that you like to read that inspire you in your life? It's, you know, having read a book and doing written a book and some articles and doing, you probably have the same. I get so many books sent to me right. um, that I, that I get, I, you know, I, there are certain that I like, I have a, a page on my website um, where I list the books, but a few of the books that I've really loved over life. And this one came from Ken Blanchard is everything you need to know. You learn in kindergarten, in kindergarten. by Robert Fulgham. Yep. Is a great book. And Ken, I know, reads that every summer, and I do as well, because it reminds me of the principles that in business are very similar. Say please and thank you, pick up after yourself. If you go out at night, have someone, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Another one that I love is Shackleton's Way, um, a great explorer, Shackleton, um, who there's some great leadership lessons in that. Um, I just finished reading uh, Out of the Maze, which is the follow-on from um, Who Moved My Cheese. Right which is great. And of course, Simon's book, I just finished reading um, uh, The Infinite Game. Um, I, um, I've i been interested in a book that I've, I'm trying to get around, which is um, writ- what, the latest one by, um, I'm going to forget it, I'm going to mm-hmm. move on. But, uh, oh, Talking to Strangers um, is, is one that was that's, that I've been reading recently. So it's more of those sort of sure. you know, books that I read than... I'm not really into novels and fantasies. Yeah. Do you have, uh, you said you have that reading list, and I've seen some of those on your website as well. What's the process for sharing books with your tribe members? Do you have, like, here's the book I'm reading and you want people, or I know a lot of CEOs will, will feel inspired to give a book to their, to their people. Do you do much of that at all? Or? We have a library. Yeah. Um, we built a library in our new building down here. Awesome. It's full of books, and people can go in there and 
and take what they like. And I'm always sharing stuff out. Um, uh, you know, if I like something and I think it would be appropriate for a certain leader, I'll buy it and give it to them, um, which is, is which I think is worthy of doing. Yeah. So what haven't you accomplished that we all have goals? We all have things that they're, whatever's next. We all have this one big thing that we want to go out there and still do. Is there that big, hairy, audacious goal that Gary has? No. Yeah. No. It's more of the same. Yeah. Steady as she goes. Steady as she goes. Excellent. Um, I could ask a million more questions, but I think what I, I, I think the answer to this question you've just answered in the last 40 minutes, but you know, the name of our podcast is called From the Heart, and it's a, it's a play on my last name, but more importantly than that, it's um, really the, the objective of why I've created this and why we, we've come up with this concept is to not only get into the heart of the person that we're talking to, but hopefully that whatever the person that we're talking to shares with our audience will pierce the hearts of those that, that watch and listen to this podcast as well. So first of all, before I ask you the question, I just want to thank you because this last 38 or 39 minutes has been not just a look into the brain of Gary Ridge, but really a, a feel in the heart of what, what drives you. And I appreciate that. And I, I, I love how you're, you're just transparent and that's just it's just obvious. If I were to ask you the question, though, right now, just in these last 40 minutes and going forward, what's in your heart right now, Gary? What would you say? It's not about me. Not about you. It's about the people that we can help have a better life. Excellent. I can't follow up any more on that other than just to say thank you. I, I know you're a busy man. I know you travel the world, and we've, we've talked about that a little bit. Uh, Two things in common with our travels is recently we've both been in Vietnam and you're from Australia and I was there once. So I guess those are, those are our, our, the things we have in common. But um, we appreciate your time today. I know that uh, we know some of the same people. We had the opportunity recently to go down there and interview uh, your friend and mine, Ken Blanchard. Uh, tell me a little bit about Ken and that relationship and then we'll wrap. Oh, um, you know, Ken and I have known each other for over 20 years now. We're very, very close friends. Um, I love, I love who he is. I love what he does. Uh, he's just a selfless person, um, mm -hmm. and um, uh, and, a, and just a great human being. And uh, just, just, he's made such a an impact on my thinking. Yeah. Uh, I will forever be grateful for having had the opportunity to be uh, in his presence, and I am honoured to call him my friend. I would say exactly what you just said. I would just say ditto. How did it come about to write? Uh, come about to write? How to win at work with Ken? Um, <laughs> I was in class, and he was telling the story about when he was a, uh, um, a, a professor at university, and how he used to give out the final paper at the beginning of the class, and he would get in trouble from the administration. And he said, "Not only am I going to give out the final paper, but I'm going to help them learn the answers." And I said, "Oh, duh! Why don't we do that in business?" <laughs> there you go. And we got together and we said, "You know, we, we have we have something we can share here that's meaningful." So we got together and we wrote, "Helping people win at work: uh, business philosophy based on the fact that we're not here to mark your paper; we're here to help you get an A." An a because life is not about some stupid distribution uh, curve; it's about getting A's. Awesome! I love that. You wake up tomorrow, and for some unforeseen reason, you don't get to be the CEO of WD-40 anymore. What would you do? Take Max the dog for a walk. <laughs> there you go. You're already doing that. Yeah, I know. So, excellent. <laughs> Gary, thank you so much. 
I appreciate your time. We appreciate your time. I, I'd love to follow up with you soon to, to get you back up to Orange County and, and talk to our folks again at some point. Take care, bud. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to From the Heart, a Fraser Industries Studios production. Created and hosted by Ed Hart. Directed and produced by me, Todd Frazier. Audio engineered by Jake Frazier. To find out more, go to frazierinc.com slash from the heart. F-R-A-Z-I-N-C dot com slash F-R-O-M-T-H-E-H-A-R-T. We'll see you in the next episode.